Hello, this is Patrick Ridge with Transamerica, and welcome to another edition of Market Pulse with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wall. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Patrick. Nice to be back. Now, Tom, this is sort of a marquee edition of Market Pulse, if I may say so, in that we'll be hearing about your mid-year 2022 market outlook paper that you just released. That's right. And, and at this mid-year point, there is no shortage of topics to talk about. That's for sure. So let's just jump right in. And as the paper certainly hits some areas that I'm sure are top of mind for most investors, the first of which being something we talked a lot about in our last discussion, and that's recession risk. Tom, in your judgment, are we heading into a recession? Uh, well, well, Patrick, uh, in my judgment, uh, yes. Uh, in the paper, we attribute about a 60% probability of the economy going into recession at some point over the next year. Uh, when we last spoke, I think we kind of separated out recession risk into two parts, as in uh, recession now and recession later. Uh, the first one being the risk of the economy slipping into a recession uh, immediately following the first quarter's uh, GDP reading of negative 1.6% growth. Uh, and if this second quarter we have just concluded might then also be a negative quarter, this would then meet the practical criteria of a recession, that being two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. Now, mm -hmm. that's not an official definition, but it, it's pretty much a widely accepted one. Uh, and as okay. we stand right now, Patrick, uh, with the second quarter have, having just recently concluded uh, and updated economic data still coming in, and uh, with the Atlanta Fed's tracking estimate uh, now below the flat line, I think there's a better than even probability we've just concluded a second consecutive quarter of negative economic growth. And if that turns out to be the case, then we are in a recession right now? I would say yes, most likely, uh, with okay. a few caveats for the record. Uh, data is still coming in for the quarter, so there's a fighting chance we could still pull out a, a positive growth quarter. Uh, and as far as official recessions go, they're not actually – uh, declared until after the fact by the National Bureau of Economic Research, who confirms they meet the more broad definition of a quote-unquote significant decline in economic activity spread across the economy and lasting more than a few months. But, but look, I don't want to mince words or split hairs too much here. If, in fact, we have just had another quarter of negative economic growth, and we'll have a very good read on that in a couple of weeks when the Bureau of Economic Analysis releases the first advanced estimate on second quarter GDP. And if that is another negative growth quarter, as I think there's a good chance it could be, then I think the markets and the general public will pretty much consider us to be in a recession, regardless of any official designation to follow, which, of course, is not the end of the world by any means. Over the past 75 years, we have had 12 recessions, which average out to about one every six years. Uh, and of course, if you had bought into the market 75 years ago, you'd be in pretty good shape right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Markets have historically done a very good job of discounting recessions before they occur and discounting the recoveries of them once they do occur. And with the larger than 20% decline in most of the major stock indexes already having happened, uh, the first half of this equation is now pretty much in place. So I believe mm -hmm. the second half of that equation, 
discounting the recovery of a recession will depend on how bad the recession will be. Will it be a relatively moderate in length and depth, sort of like uh, the early 1990s and early 2000s recessions, uh, both of which lasted a little more than two quarters, about eight months to be exact, and saw peak to trough downturns in GDP in the 1% range? Or will it be more prolonged and severe recession, sort of like the 1981-1982 recession and the 2007 through 2009 recession, both of which were a good bit more painful, lasting about a year and a half and experiencing peak to trough declines in GDP of negative 2.7% and negative 5.1% respectively. So mm-hmm. if we do hit the practical definition of a recession in the next few weeks, the markets will likely focus in pretty quickly on attempting to decipher this sort of differentiation. And which way do you think we would be headed? Right now, I would say more along the lines of a moderate recession, probably lasting between two and four quarters and with a peak to trough GDP decline uh, in the 1% range. Remember, the negative 1.6% reading in the first quarter was annualized and only negative 0.4% for the quarter itself. So we still have a ways to go before hitting something comparable to those nastier recessions I just mentioned. Why do you think it will be on the more moderate side? Uh, well, a few reasons, which which we detail in the paper. But uh, first, labor markets continue to be very strong. Uh, the June employment report came in at uh, 372,000 additional jobs added to the economy. And over the past six months, we have averaged better than 450,000 new jobs per month. Pretty much everyone who believes we are not going into recession points immediately at those types of numbers. Second, uh, this pending recession is one that is being driven more by supply issues than most others have historically. Inventories, trade imbalances, uh, energy and commodity shortages, that sort of thing. And so as those ultimately resolve, I think we could pull out of the downturn faster than most traditional and more demand-oriented recessions. Uh, third, I think uh, we should see some incremental favorable impacts uh, from the new post-COVID world, so to speak, and a boost to uh, consumer spending over the next several months. Not, not enough by itself to keep us out of recession, but perhaps enough to stunt the severity of it to some degree. I mean, there is still... Uh, a newly discovered freedom out there after two plus years of quarantines and social distancing, which now seems to be finally going away. And, and finally, there is still a very large amount of household savings that built up during the pandemic and is still sitting in individual savings accounts, estimated to be in the area of about $2 trillion or so in aggregate. And that stockpile could also play a major role in keeping a recession on the more moderate side. So all considered, Patrick, I'm in the camp of a more moderate and manageable recession than a prolonged and nasty one. But of course, there is still a binary profile to all recessions. I certainly don't want to candy coat that in any way. Negative economic growth is just what those words imply. And that means pain to a lot of people and businesses, just a matter of how much. But from a pure investment standpoint, A more moderate recession likely also implies potentially better long-term returns for stock and credit markets and for investors who have the patience and fortitude to forge on through it. 
Now, Tom, you also designate a section of the paper to inflation, which has reached 40-plus year highs. Where should we begin on this? Uh, well, well, perhaps uh, we should begin with our assessment that even in light of a recession or recession risk, I think the biggest question the markets are looking to have resolved is when will inflation show some signs of peaking? And uh, as of right now, as we are anticipating uh, the upcoming uh, June uh, Consumer Price Index report, that answer still seems to be we're not there yet. Uh, for the month of May, Consumer Price Index and the Fed's preferred measure, Personal Consumption Index or PCE uh, Price Index, just have not shown any real signs of slowing. Uh, maybe that's coming in the next couple of months, but it's not here yet. A headline CPI for May was uh, 8.6% on a year-over-year comparison, its highest rate since uh, December 1981. And uh, core CPI, ex-food and energy, uh, slowed only slightly to 6%, uh, still reflecting close to a four-decade high. PCE headline inflation was 6.3%, just below 40-year highs, and its core reading was 4.7%, down a bit from its February and March uh, readings of 5%. So, so directionally, perhaps there's a bit of a case to be made it's peaking, but in my opinion, far from anything confirmatory or convincing. And that hasn't helped the markets either. So where are you seeing the trends from here? Uh, well, Patrick, uh, we think there could be some mitigating trends pertaining to inflation in the second half of this year that could help to reduce the rate of core inflation currently running in this 5 to 6% range, perhaps down to a range of 4% or lower by year end. And this could provide some relief to the markets. And what would those be? Well, the, there are a few which uh, we've outlined in the paper, beginning with the Fed's tightening cycle, which has now fully taken off. Right now, markets are, market expectations are that the Fed will probably finish out the year between three and a quarter and 3.5% on the Fed funds rate. Personally, I, I think it will be higher than that uh, perceived range. And remember, we started the year at zero, so this should have some real impacts on demand as the year moves forward. Uh, second, as the economy further reopens in a post-COVID environment, we should begin to see a continuing shift in consumer activity away from finished goods and into the service sectors of the economy, which are inherently less inflationary and less dependent on global supply chains. A third, uh, we believe worker shortages uh, could be starting to subside with uh, aggregate demand in the economy slowing and higher consumer prices having taken a a big bite out of uh, a lot of household budgets. We think the quote-unquote great resignation of last year may uh, have already peaked, and those labor shortages uh, will continue to dissipate in the months ahead. Uh, and mm -hmm. finally, over the past few months, five-year break-even inflation rates, as measured by the difference between nominal yields of U.S. Treasury bonds and comparable maturity Treasury inflation uh, protected securities or TIPS uh, have fallen from a high of 3.59% late March to a recent level of about 2.6%. And this reflects the bond market's longer term view on inflation to be not, not nearly as treacherous now as it was uh, believed to be about three or four months ago. So it would be our judgment that these factors uh, could be pointing toward lower rates of core inflation 
in the second half of 2022 and into 2023, perhaps in the range of uh, annualized year-over-year price gains in the sub-4% by year-end. We are by no means saying that inflation is going away anytime soon, just that the rates of rising consumer prices could come down, and that could help provide some relief uh, for the economy and the markets. So, Tom, we have this precarious situation of both inflation and potential recession. You could call that stagflation. Yes, you certainly could. It's much like uh, in the early 1980s. Right. And so how does this play out from a, a stock standpoint? I mean, it can't be good, can it? Well, well, it depends, Patrick. I, I think you can start to make a case that a lot of bad news has already been priced into stocks at this point. I mean, we've already hit bear market declines of a 20% or worse across most of the major stock indexes. And if all of this bad news turns out to be not all as bad as most are fearing, uh, then that could be a sign that we're at some attractive long-term entry points now in place. Okay, so how do you go about determining if that's the case? Well, well, Patrick, this entire market environment right now, given all of its variables and uncertainties, uh, is, as the saying goes, uh, a bit like trying to find your way across a pitch-dark room with a blindfold on. But that said, I think you can still gauge the parameters and, and make some educated judgments. The first is how bad the economy might get or not get. And what that will mean for stocks. So in the paper, we map out four broad scenarios and our best take on their probability. We have a base case of a moderate but not severe recession and with core inflation mitigating to 4% or below and the Fed funds rate peaking at 3.75% all happening over the next year. In this Mm -hmm. scenario, economic growth is set to resume in calendar year 2024, as inflation rates mitigate, uh, the Fed concludes raising rates, and the post-COVID environment creates some momentum. And with a 16 times forward earnings multiple on about $250 of S&P 500 earnings for calendar year 2024, that gets you to around 4000 on the S&P 500 in mid-2023, or about one year from now. So that's our base case for the upcoming year. We have a few other scenarios of lower probability, including two outlier cases. One is no recession, and current current earnings estimates are achieved. That's our upside outlier case, in which we attribute only a 10% probability, and a downside outlier case, which has a higher probability of 20%, and entails earnings dropping all the way down to $200, or about a 20% decline from current estimates on the S&P 500 for calendar year 2023 and calendar year 2024. That would assume we have a 1981 or 2008 type recession. In making a weighted average calculation of these scenarios and their probabilities, we came to a price range on the S&P 500 for one year from now and as of mid-2023, of about 3,200 to 5,000 with a midpoint just below 4,100. We then added about another 100 points to account for a couple of upside wild cards, which included a better than expected economic impact from consumer activity in a post-COVID environment and a change in political party leadership within Congress 
after next November's elections. Uh, this got us to 4,200 for one year from now in mid 2023 and a calendar year 2022 year end target of about 4,050. Now, you had a couple of those other pieces of analysis you pulled in as well, correct? Yes. We also included an equity risk premium analysis in which we calculated an earnings yield on calendar year 2023 S&P 500 net operating income and subtracted out a higher than yet to be experienced 10-year Treasury bond interest rate of 3.75% and then compared that differential to others of comparable levels over the past 50 years. Again, this led us to a wide range of inferred future three-year annualized returns, but the median was also consistent with our base case and expected probability one-year target in that 4,200 range. And, and from a technical checkpoint, that 4,200 target also represents about a 50% retracement on the S&P 500's high to low decline from this past January 3rd to June 14th. So that seemed to, to make some intuitive sense as well. And, and again, in looking at potential unexpected events, perhaps flying under the radar right now, we saw most of those as being favorable catalysts. And they included uh, you know, peaceful resolution to the war in Ukraine, corporate earnings growth, uh, which we uh, just talked about, uh, not mm -hmm. declining as much as most are feeling, as well as uh, po the post-COVID world and the November elections. We figured those were all slight to moderate factors if they were to happen, uh, and, and of course, which would work directionally in the market's favor. So again, mm -hmm. uh, that's how we went about dealing with what is a lot of market variables and uncertainties in getting to an S&P 500 price target of 4050 for this end of year calendar year 2022 and 4,200 for one year from now in mid 2023. Now, Tom, you also continued like value stocks versus growth stocks. Is that right? Uh, yes, Patrick. In light of the fact that even though value stocks have meaningfully outperformed growth so far this year, we believe there is still a lot of mean regression or perhaps better said catching up for value to do uh, over the uh, over at least the next year or so, if not longer, and of course related uh, to the value's long history of trailing returns versus growth uh, from this recently concluded decade of 2011 through 2021. And this is predicated again on the post-COVID world uh, favoring value stocks and the inherently more favorable backdrop we see for value stocks as the inflationary and rising rate environment. Uh, further plays out. Now, your paper also has a section dedicated to what we should expect out of the Federal Reserve in the, mm -hmm. in the second half of the year and beyond, mm -hmm. as as well as for short and long-term interest rates. Yes, it does. And Tom, I can't help but quote your very first line of that section in which you write, up until recently, the Federal Reserve was walking a tightrope. Now it is driving a fire engine. Care to elaborate on that a bit? Uh, yes, I suppose most metaphors probably don't include a tightrope and a fire engine in the same sentence. Um, no. But, <laughs> but the, the point here is that, as I had written earlier in the year when the Fed was in the, pro the very early process of its long overdue tightening cycle, uh, that it was essentially walking a tightrope and trying to thread a needle between curbing inflation and preventing a recession. Uh, 
that's how the year started. But now more than six months in, they, they probably no longer have that luxury. Uh, mm-hmm. They now have to prioritize and controlling and reducing inflation more so uh, than engineering a soft landing from the scorching hot economic recovery we, we had last year. Uh, while a soft landing is still possible, I think everyone, including the Fed itself, is now recognizing it's becoming more of a long shot and getting inflation rates down has to be their top priority. In retrospect, this is probably something they they should have realized at least a year ago. And by not acting more decisively during the second half of last year and the early months of this year, the inflation fire burned somewhat out of control. And now they have got to get it under control, uh, even if it means slowing economic growth to a halt or even into a recession. Because as painful as recessions are, long-term persistently high inflation High single digit or, or or double digit inflation can be a lot more debilitating to the overall economy uh, and leave a longer trail of collateral damage in its wake. So specifically, what does that mean in terms of Fed actions? Well, a few things, Patrick. First, a faster pace and higher magnitude of rate hikes. Remember, just six months ago, most economists and market strategists were calling for maybe two or three one quarter point rate hikes for all of calendar year 2022. I mean, we'll probably wind up getting more than four times that amount. In fact, as we speak, the Fed funds a futures market right now is implying the year will end with a Fed funds rate of about three and a half percent. Personally, I think it will wind up higher than that, probably at about 3.75 percent. That's what I think will ultimately be necessary for the Fed to get core inflation below 4% and ultimately mm-hmm. on a path towards its long-term objective of 2% annualized inflation, uh, which very well could wind up being a multi-year project. So, Tom, take us through the trajectory of rate hikes you see as occurring for the remainder of the year, please. Uh, yeah. Patrick, in my judgment, is that if the Fed really is serious about getting core inflation uh, down uh, below 4% and sustaining it there, uh, they'll need to go 75 basis points at the July meeting and 50 basis points at the three remaining meetings thereafter to close out the year at uh, 3.75%. I really think it will take that sort of a trajectory to fully combat the type of inflation we are seeing and eventually sustain it at lower levels. And in terms of longer term rates? Now, this is really interesting, Patrick, because there are a few different schools of thoughts here all surrounding the future slope of the yield curve. One school of thought is that we will see a steep inversion of the yield curve, uh, of course, meaning long-term rates will dip below short-term rates. In this case, uh, you get the Fed taking rates up at the short end to somewhere around, let's say, that 3.5% over the next six months or so. And in getting to three and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, we go into a recession and the yield curve inverts with Fed funds yielding higher than the 10-year Treasury rate. Uh, The widest inversion between the Fed funds rate and the 10-year bond since 1985 occurred in anticipation of the 2001 recession. And that was about 75 basis points which in this hypothetical case 
uh, would take the 10-year down to about 2.75%. So that's your bullish price, bearish yield argument on long-term rates. I, I would take a different perspective here based on yield curve history of mostly inverting in anticipation of recession, but then steepening once we are in a recession in anticipation of a recovery. And with the Fed funds rate basically at zero going into this year, that simply was not going to happen mathematically. So on this go-round, my sense is we missed the anticipatory yield curve inversion between the Fed funds rate and the 10-year yield prior to recession. And as a result, we wind up more in a flat yield curve environment as we potentially slog through a recession in the second half of the year. So maybe the Fed goes to 3.7% by the end of the year and the 10-year Treasury moves up but at a slower pace. And as we come out of recession and stagflation subsides, we have more of a flat-type yield curve with both the Fed funds and 10-year yield at about 3.75% by year end. Mm, interesting, Tom. And, and that is a lot to be watching for in the months ahead, huh? Uh, yes. This type of stagflation environment, inflation and potential recession simultaneous, simultaneously, is not a common historical event. You have to go all the way back to 1981, uh, and even then, absolute levels of interest rates were so high it, it, back then, it really can't serve as too much of a yield curve precedent for today. So, yes, we have a lot to be watching uh, for looking forward. And, Tom, I think we also want to touch on the Fed's balance sheet reduction and what that might mean for longer-term rates, too. Yes. Yeah, so, so in addition to raising short-term interest rates, the Fed has also begun reducing its $9 trillion balance sheet of Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities previously accumulated through its massive bond-buying programs applied uh, during and in the aftermath of the COVID economic contraction and the global financial uh, crisis during 2008 through 2014. Accordingly, they will soon be ramping up to a monthly reduction in bond holdings of $95 billion a month in August for an annualized pace of about $1.1 trillion. Now, now, to be clear, this does not mean the Fed will initially be selling $1.1 trillion of bonds right off the bat. They're going to begin this reduction by simply not reinvesting maturing principal and letting bonds roll off their balance sheet. So initially, they'll be going from a net buyer of bonds to a non-buyer of bonds Okay. Uh, but eventually, in the years ahead, they will likely become a seller of bonds. And this quantitative tightening, uh, as it's been dubbed, is another reason you could see longer-term rates moving higher uh, this year and in, and in the next. And, Patrick, as a result of all this, I think bond investors may want to stay more concentrated at the short end of the curve and below benchmark durations, uh, where they can potentially lock in some higher yields but still mitigate interest rate risk. Hmm. It's fascinating look at interest rates, Tom. Now, on a related note, I believe you also wrote a section about opportunities in the corporate bond markets. That's right. Now, the landscape for both investment-grade and high-yield bonds has undergone a complete sea change over the past several months. Now, obviously, inflation, pending recession, and the Fed's tightening cycle have played a large role in this. But still, uh, the changes have been quite dramatic. Uh, just as a quick comparison, since the end – 
of the third quarter of 2021, just about nine months ago, and up to this morning's market open, the five-year Treasury yield has increased from 0.97% to more than 3%, uh, more than a triple increase uh, in yield in about nine months. Investment-grade credit spreads to comparable maturity Treasury bonds have increased from 0.89% to about 1.6%, and high-yield credit spreads have increased from about 3.2% to about 5.5%. Now, the takeaway here is that your average five-year investment-grade bond is now yielding in the 45 to 5% range, which is higher than where your average high-yield bond was trading just nine months ago. Let me say that again. The average investment-grade bond today is yielding higher than the average high-yield bond was just nine months ago. And your average hmm. five-year high-yield bond is now trading at a yield of uh, just just under 9%, more than twice its yield of last October. Now, as I said hmm. a moment ago, obviously inflation and fear of recession has played a major role in these higher yields. But I think the key point in all of this would be that if you think the rate of inflation has a chance to come down, in the next year or so, perhaps to a, a, a core rate of 4% or lower and a prolonged and severe recession, as opposed to a, simply a moderate one, can be avoided, then fixed income investors may want to think about locking in these higher levels of yields, which in the high yield market are at their highest uh, they've been since the COVID crisis of two years ago, and the investment grade bonds, the highest They've been since just after the Great Recession ended in 2009. And Tom, you also have a section on international stocks. What are your quick thoughts there? Well, international developed and emerging market stocks currently face a number of challenges, including the war in Ukraine, declining rates of economic growth, global inflation, a rising U.S. dollar, and continuing COVID lockdowns in China. However, we believe there's a, there's there's a strong probably most pending bad news and unfavorable outcomes are now fully priced in, inferring a favorable long-term risk-reward profile in the event these outcomes do not play out as badly uh, as most might fear. So a few quick points here. The war in Ukraine has, of course, been a human tragedy beyond any measurement in the financial markets. However, Mm -hmm. when viewing this crisis from a market perspective, we believe any peaceful resolution, regardless of how distant it might seem at times would likely result in a strong upward move for international developed and emerging market equities. Uh, Also, as most of the world moves forward into a post-COVID environment, the question also remains as to how much longer China can and will continue zero COVID laws and policies. Should we see the intense national restrictions and lockdowns in China materially loosened and eventually nullified at some point in the foreseeable future, uh, this would likely provide uh, quite favorable uh, results for China and uh, emerging market stocks. Also, uh, just as in the U.S., international investors are anxiously awaiting signs of global inflation uh, potentially peaking. In the event such evidence uh, or trends appear during the next several months, this could provide not only much-needed relief for developed and emerging market stocks, but also perhaps uh, signal recent stock 
price bottoms are in place. And finally, okay. valuations remain quite attractive based on forward multiples for uh, MSCI, EFA and MSCI emerging markets uh, indexes uh, and their comparison to U.S. stocks. Now, with all that said, uh, investor patience and tolerance of volatility may still be required uh, in the year mm -hmm. ahead for international emerging market equities as they slog through some of these headwinds. And Tom, like past market outlooks, you've included a section on portfolio positioning for the second half of 2022 and beyond. Uh, what's your quick summary here? Sure. We favor stocks versus bonds and discretionary balance and asset allocation accounts, although both asset classes are probably set up for positive returns in the year ahead. Within U.S. stocks, we favor value stocks versus growth in this inflationary and higher interest rate environment. International developed and emerging market stocks could be favorably positioned to uh, play a role in overall gl global equity portfolios. For fixed income, bond investors may want to remain short on the curve and below benchmark durations and also lean into investment grade and high yield bonds in this newly higher yielding and wider credit spread environment. And finally, as we have included past market outlook discussions, how about one sentence summaries for each of the topics we've covered? Yes. Let's start with the U.S. economy. We will probably see a recession sooner rather than later. We believe it will likely be a moderate one rather than a prolonged and severe one. And as core inflation potentially mitigates into the, four, into the sub 4% range, uh, we could be looking at renewed economic growth uh, by the second half of 2023. U.S. stocks. A lot of bad news has already been priced into U.S. equities. We believe following a relatively short and moderate recession, stocks could be well positioned for revived earnings growth in 2024. Our one-year mid-2023 target on the S&P 500 is 4,200, and our year-end calendar year 2022 target is 4050. Interest rates. The Fed is still behind the curve on inflation and will need to remain aggressive in terms of hiking rates. We believe calendar year 2022 will likely conclude with a lower bound on the Fed funds rate of 3.75% and a 10-year Treasury yield also at about 3.75% reflecting a flat yield curve. Credit and income. Most high-yield and investment-grade bonds are now yielding more than two times their levels of last autumn, and we would view these newer and higher-income opportunities as attractive uh, given current market conditions. International stocks. International developed and emerging market stocks currently face a number of challenges. However, we believe there's a strong probability most pending bad news and unfavorable outcomes are now close to fully priced in, uh, inferring a favorable long-term risk-reward profile in the event these outcomes do not play out as badly as most might fear. And any wild cards out there to be watching for? Uh, potential upside wild cards could include a peaceful res resolution to the war in Ukraine, pent-up consumer demand in a post-COVID environment, a lack of downward revisions to current corporate earnings estimates, uh, the upcoming November congressional elections, and the simple premise that most expected bad news might not turn out to be as bad as most might fear. Well, Tom, 
I think we're about out of time. And I want to thank you for covering a multitude of topics, as, of course, we always do in your Market Outlook overviews. And I want to encourage everyone listening to go to transamerica.com and read or download Tom's complete 2022 Mid-Year Market Outlook paper, as it covers everything we've just talked about in both great detail and easy-to-follow summaries. And let me tell you, like his past Market Outlooks, Tom gets right to the key points, but in doing so, pretty much leaves no stone unturned. Uh, Tom, thanks again for being with us today and for reviewing your outlook. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. Two two eight six zero three seven.